Coming to you from somewhere along the Ohio-West Virginia border, welcome to Nostalgia Highway, the movies you know from the guys you don't. We thank you so much for hitching a ride along with us today. I'm your host, the Mayor, Matt Logson, and with me as always are my two esteemed co-hosts. I'm Dave King of the Road. And I am the Lord Ketchum. Alright fellas, so today we are going to review the epic, the classic, Pet Cemetery from 1989. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? Daddy's gonna do something really bad! Sometimes that is better. If it doesn't work, I'll just put him back. Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. Alright, so... After tragedy strikes, a grieving father discovers an ancient burial ground behind his home with the power to raise the dead. So. Just want to remind our listeners and anyone that is unfamiliar with how we do things, we are on full spoiler alert here on Nostalgia Highway. We may not disclose every detail, but there will be minor and major spoilers discussed in this episode. So, uh, shall we explore the space? Let's do it. Let's do it. Alright. You can wear pants if you want to. I'm... I'm going to. And you can dance if, if you want to. If you're driving to. down the road, I would suggest you're wearing pants because there is laws in certain states, people. And it's cold where we're at, so. It but is anyways. right now. All right. <laughs> oh, boy. So, depending upon what day of the week you may ask me, this might be my favorite Stephen King movie. Hmm. Um, it's actually in a three-way tie between Misery and The Shining. And yes, hardcore Stephen King fans, I know that... Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is not a accurate representation of what the book is, but from a technical standpoint, that movie is top-notch and just phenomenal. But Stephen King does have a movie, and it's The Shining. So back up a second. So wait a minute. You, do you not like that one? Or Are you talking about the 90s version yeah. of the miniseries? Stephen King's. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, with Stephen Weber. Uh Actually, I have seen it. It's been a really long time, and I even said to myself here not that long ago, I need to revisit that. Oh. So. You do. Because I understand that it is a more closer representation of what the book is. Yeah. So. Give yourself about four hours to. Right. I know it's long. Because there's a couple bathroom breaks you're going to need to take, and you probably <laughs> need to go to the kitchen once it is a long. It is a long one. But yeah. But yeah. Pet Ar- Cemetery. Arguably my favorite Stephen King book. Um, so, for the opening theme here, for the when it opens up and it's going through the Pet Cemetery, the uh, it's really haunting, and I really like the theme music. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a little bit of a vibe of the original Amityville Horror theme music there with the or the choir mm-hmm. kind of singing. Did anybody else pick up on that? No, no I did not, actually. You got me there. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm not saying it exists or it doesn't. <coughs> it's just, I guess, in that moment when I was watching it, it kind of struck me as like, oh, it's... Yeah, a little bit of Amityville horror, I thought. I mix up Children of the Corn and Amityville sometimes with the little Mm. nuances of that. Children, just, you know, vocally. It is a very creepy scene. Um, I like how it's, you know, it's got the kids' voices, you know, for each gravesite and everything, you know. Like whatever little prayer they said at the at the gravesite and everything. Right. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's creepy. It's haunting. Yeah. It's a taste of things to come. I love the layout of the cemetery. Yes. Just, you know, going all circles and everything, you know. Older ones are in the more center and everything. 
There's a lot of pets killed by that road. Well, and it's not sure. well. It's not just the road, though. I, uh, yeah, there's a goldfish in there. I was gonna say the goldfish right. got taken out by a semi truck, apparently. Because <laughs> no, 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 didn't get taken out by I the road. I think that would have had yeah. to have some help if it was gonna get in the middle of the road. This is my so. I know there's one character in particular in this movie that I'm sure with most people that's seen this movie it it resonates something within them. But whenever you discuss this movie with somebody that you haven't uh, that hasn't seen this before, what is like the first thing you go to to be like, "Oh my gosh, this scene or this moment or this character?" Mm, that's a good question. I really I mean, thought really, of that. Actually. Realistically, the gauge you know, getting hit by the semi trucks. Uh, okay. The first thing that comes to mind when I think of this movie because it's the most troubling and traumatic, right? Uh, heartbreaking experience in the whole movie. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would say the gauge scene, but um, you know, with like him fighting with Fred Gwynn, I think that's mm. that'd be my favorite part. That, that's one of my favorite scenes, the Achilles scene. Yeah, it, it <laughs> definitely has a different meaning for me now because. About four or five years ago, I actually had Achilles uh, tendon surgery. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that scene is way more effective now than it ever <laughs> has been before uh, that surgery. So, for me, it's Zelda. Zelda? Um, yeah. I hear you. I'm going to tell you, nightmare fuel, man. I'm telling yeah. you that this movie creeped me out as a kid, seriously, big time. And a large part of it was Zelda. So creepy, so unsettled. That Rachel! Oh, God. Just the way that her spine in the back and everything protrudes yeah. out of her body and everything. It's You can see the wicked S, you know, shape of the spine. And it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. As someone <laughs> who has read the book, oh. I will say that that portrayal of Zelda on screen probably is the number one most effective they knocked it out of the park comparison to the book really because all all the time people compare all this the book's better the you know than the movie the book did not describe zelda as effectively as the on-screen portrayal because they really nailed it they really i thought was more effective in the movie of portraying her than they were in the book Wow, that's interesting. Heck yeah. So you've read the book. I have read the book. You, From two back. You read the book. I have listened to the book. <laughs> and, uh, I was wondering if you were going to come clean on that. On the audio book, yes. <laughs> While I've sat and drew the uh, Pet Cemetery drawing I was doing. Nice. Very yes. inspirational for drawing and that's listening to what the, better inspiration. Exactly. Check out Kane Art on Facebook, yep. everybody. You can get yourself a... He's got a Facebook? He does have a Facebook. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's actually linked with the uh, Nostalgia Highway oh, podcast yeah, Facebook. So. Yeah. Cheap plugs. Check there it out. Go. 11 by 17. <laughs> yeah. Pet Cemeteries. Pet Ten cemetery bucks. Prints. Ten bucks. Come get <laughs> them, guys. Give you a second one for five. There you go. Boom. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting, though, about the Zelda character. Uh, that was played by a man named Andrew Hubastek. Kind yeah. of a boy. An yes, old, he was... Uh, he was... Uh, I believe they said in the uh, documentary, the Unearthed and Untold, the Path of Pet Cemetery documentary, um, he was right out of high school. He was 18, but he was very, very small framed. And he, apparently with his movements and his auditions, he nailed it. 
So, yeah. But it's interesting. That was actually uh, played by a man. I think once I knew that fact, I I was like, oh yeah, okay, I, I can tell. But but before I knew that fact, I would have never guessed. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. When I was growing up, I thought it was a girl. Yep. Totally. That was sold. Yep. That was Zelda, and not from the video game. No, not even close. <laughs> Much prettier. So <coughs> we got to talk about the late great Fred Gwynn. Oh, oh my yes. God, how amazing was he in this movie? He makes the movie. He does. You know? I have to agree with you on that, Lord Ketchum. I mean, he—he's <sighs> irreplaceable. I don't know how they can. I don't know how they can do it in the remake, but I—I yeah. I feel like the—I feel like them getting John Lithgow is a. I like that choice. I do too. I feel like he could—he could do it, but man, in my mind, Fred Gwynn as Judd Crandall in this movie is just—he's iconic. Yeah, and really makes it his own. He can—he wear, he can wear those shoes, but I don't know if John Lithgow can. Fill those shoes. I, I I think I have to agree with you. I think more than anything, I'm curious to see right. uh, what John Lithgow brings to the Judd Crandall character that you know Fred Gwynn didn't. But Fred Gwynn, I, I I'm going to go ahead and say it. I feel like this was his best performance ever. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I feel like it. I'm a I, pretty big Herman Munster fan. Well, I I am too, and I love the Munsters. I I will go as far as to say that. Those two characters equally are his best. <laughs> I mean, one hundred percent. That's fair. nailed it. One hundred percent nailed it. Right, both places. But he, you could just tell. I mean, just as such a character actor. I mean, if you watch the documentary, which I'm going to get and tell you, if you haven't had a chance to watch the documentary called Unearth and Untold: The Path to Pet Cemetery, it is absolutely incredible. It's a must watch if you're a fan of the film or of Stephen King. It's uh, directed by John Campapiano, and it's from 2017. So uh, it's about 97 minutes long. You get a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff from back in the uh, at when they were filming, and current interviews with actors, and it's it's just top-notch. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it was a little long for me to be honest, but you know it, it does get into pretty much every detail about the movie. Yep. Uh, make sure you stick around after the credits roll. You get a short clip with Miko Hughes. Uh, so make sure you kind of maybe if you're if you're streaming this and you can get this on Shutter if you have a subscription or it's free with ads on Tubi TV. So maybe scroll ahead and get to that if you want to get to that uh, scene with Miko Hughes. So yeah. I guess George Romero was originally set to direct this movie. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he dropped out, and after production was delayed. And he went on to direct Monkey Shines. Yeah. Hmm. I don't blame him for that move. I mean, right. I like Monkey Shines, but it's man. a good movie. George Romero directed Monkey Mary, Shines. Yeah. yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, he sure did. Wow. Mary Lambert did a fantastic job. With she this. did. She um, really did. She knocked yeah. it out of the park. This is a fantastic movie. And also, Tom Savini was offered, but he declined. Oh, really? Yes. To direct it? Yes. Huh. Yeah, man. I thought that was interesting too. Tom Savini, Pet Cemetery. You you get some. Uh, what could have been? Right. Yeah. You you can only imagine where that could have went. Yeah. There's not a lot of female directors. Uh, That's true, either, especially so. in horror. You know, so Shout to do a, to, to do a uh, major major movie like this, right? Know, so 
Shout out to a local director, a friend of ours, Brooklyn Ewing. She's also a great horror director. Yes, she is. She directed She Was So Pretty, and She Was So Pretty, Be Good For Goodness Sake. If you have not seen those movies, check them out. We will be reviewing them soon. Oh, yeah. That will happen. But uh, this opened in theaters in the United States on April 21st, 1989, on an estimated budget of about $11.5 million. It made over $12 million in its opening weekend. It grossed $57.4 million total in U.S. theaters alone. And in video rentals, $26.4 million. This movie was massively successful. Yeah. Right when a time when horror was really hitting, it was starting to hit the skids. Yeah. You know, and I, this, this is probably... This is definitely one of the last great horror movies. Absolutely. Before the 90s. I agree. Skid. Yeah, for sure. Man, yeah. So Mary Lambert, you know, she's going back to Fred Gwynn, you know, um, she, this was, Fred Gwynn, she said that was her first choice for this role. Yeah, her only choice. You know, it's got to be Fred Gwynn or nothing, you know, so. I tell you, when I was listening to the audiobook, I wanted to say read the book, but when I was listening (laughs) to the audiobook, I mean, every, every part of Judd's, I cannot visualize it as anybody other than Fred Gwynn is. Right. uh It is him through and through, even in the book. You can't redirect your thought to anyone other than Fred Gwynn as that character. Yeah. I guess he was, like, absolutely adored on set. Everybody loved him. He was just such... He was so... Just a larger-than-life character. Mm -hmm. So friendly. Um, I guess a lot of people... uh, He... I can't... I think it might have... I can't remember who it was, but they went over to his uh, house and had dinner with him and his wife. And, you know, that's just the type of person that he was. Hmm. Just very generous and caring of, uh, you know, this common man. And I guess the biggest reason why he decided to be in this movie was uh, uh, he had a son that was about 10 months old uh, that died due to a drowning at their swimming pool at home. And this was the biggest reason why he went with taking the role of Judd Crandall. And I thought that was really interesting and I didn't know that hmm. yeah that, that that is that's a really good fact Matt I like that one did you know Bruce Campbell was the first choice for the role of Loose Creed it became it came down not, between I him not, and Dale Midkiff just yes. the um, background for this movie man that's that's crazy I, mean, I could I could definitely see Bruce Campbell doing that role I as could as too as, it would it would be so hard to see him, and it still is to this day, to see him as anybody else other than Ash Williams, you know. But I, he he could have done it. He yeah. could have done it, I think. Yeah, I what do you think, Eric? Yeah, King? I could see that being effective. I didn't think uh, Lewis Creed's, I mean, the actor, I'm not sure his name. Dale Midkiff. Dale Midkiff. I don't think he was the strongest in the in the role. I oh, agree with I mean, you. I mean, the characters in the movie, he could have been some, Way. I completely agree. Sure. With I see that because he's he's got that little bit of you know psycho persuasion about his you know look and stuff. So yeah, Bruce Campbell could could took that and ran with it maybe right. further. Yeah, obviously you could tell because if you know the way both of those guys look, they they had a look. They were going similar, you know. Um, yeah, Dale Midkiff I feel was the weakest link in this entire movie. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you that he could have been recast and I would have been fine with it. I felt like there were times where some of his lines were kind of forced and they weren't genuine. 
but there were times where I thought he was very good. Well, I think he struggled with showing raw emotion, like the scene. I don't know. I think I think it's great actually with the the Gage stuff when he's, where he's inside digging the him. house and everything, okay. you know. And he finally takes down Gage. Yeah, <clears throat> and he's you know played or you know when he's taking out taking out Church actually. Um, He's like, you know, play dead, be dead. You know, he's just, he's, you can tell he's just broken, you know. He, no. He, what's coming up. No, I like that scene. Yeah. That's one of the times where I thought we got good Dale Midkiff. Mm-hmm. But I felt like the scene where he was digging up Gage. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, right. Where he's like, it was wrong, this is wrong, what happened. I, I don't know. I, it's just, I seemed phoned in, kind of. Mm-hmm. Right there was a disconnect, right. I felt. But I have to agree with you completely there on that, King. Uh, Dale Midkiff was the... Weakest link in this. role. Right. Yeah, but casting. he did have moments where I thought he was very effective. Yeah. He's just inconsistent. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. His character in the book was, I mean, kind of, I don't want to say plain, but I mean, he is, I mean, he is the most uh, important real character in the movie because it's kind of following his, you know, path. Right. Dead. He's the one that it's, it's chooses his story, and does really. these things. Yes, so I mean, he is kind of the main character, and he does have kind of a flat line style of playing it. I don't know, I don't know how hmm. to really put it in words, but yeah, I think a better actor could have upped the ante on that. Right on. Bruce Campbell would have been perfect. Yeah, I'd like to have seen it. I don't know that I don't know that he would have been perfect, but I definitely would would like to have seen that portrayal. Yeah, I may have ever shot it by saying perfect, but yes. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, who it might it, it might, it it might have been. I, I see him in that spot, and I see him making it more effective. So, okay. Okay. So Mika Hughes as Gage. Um, this is his first role. Ever, um, he's between the ages of thirty-one, thirty-three months. Yep, old. he was. Yep, knocked it out of the freaking park. This yeah. kid. Um, yes. When I first watched this movie, I was like, I think seven or something. I felt so bad for that kid. You know, I cried. I, would I think say that's when the I, that second best happened, so. actor in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next to Fred Gwynn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. Yeah, Mickey Hughes for sure, man. He he killed it. Great role. How old was he when he filmed it? Thirty-one to yeah, thirty-three it, months old. He was on. He was That's very young. Because he, he had lines young. that he, you know, spoke very plainly and uh, you know looked like they belonged. It wasn't like they were coaxing him. I mean, he yeah. looked legit. Well, and the uh, whole you know when he goes evil, he. That's one of the scariest kids I've ever seen on in horror movies. I'm sure. going to go ahead and say that of all, and I'm not a big fan of like scary kids in horror. This is the best one I've ever really? seen. I hear this you. is the best one. Would you like to hear some of the dialogue he uses in the book when he goes evil? Well, <laughs> is it pretty good? We don't have an uncut podcast, so that's not possible. But oh wow, he is vulgar, really, very vulgar. Is he the same age that he is in the movie as he is in the book? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Almost three years old. He says things that are just that's dark. Um, oh man, I can't. I can't even. We can't say. I it can't on even halfway time. repeat it. It's he's going after Judd, and he just cusses him, uh, f bombs everywhere, and wow. he's talking about his wife being a whore, and and uh, Whoa. Oh, basically yeah, like the Exorcist stuff. 
Wow. He's saying things like, whoa, that's Gage. Yeah, okay. That's wild. Yeah. yeah it's pretty, it's, it's insane. It's almost unbelievable. It's like, wow, that's... Stephen King said this is the only book to actually scare him that he ever written. Yeah, he actually, um, mm-hmm. he said that he wrote the book, he let his wife read it, as he always does, and she said, that is probably the scariest thing I've ever read, and don't you ever write anything like that again. He put it away because he said, "There's no way somebody would want to read this." Mm-hmm. And well, <laughs> yeah, I guess we're all just a little, a little bit morbid and twisted in our own ways too. <laughs> so. But this, it is this movie. This movie is dark. This is bleak. This movie is just hopelessness and despair. Yeah. And I'll tell you, nothing there's, good comes from this movie. <laughs> it's like a build up to this one scene. And I don't know if we want to talk about it right now, if we want to kind of put it off and get to it here in a little bit. But after this one scene, it takes the movie takes a turn. And for me personally, at that point, this movie becomes a really hard watch. Right. It becomes a hard movie to watch. Not because it's poorly executed. It's just where it goes and where this journey takes you. Man, it is, yeah. it is some dark stuff that it's unspeakable stuff. <laughs> it's rough. If you have children, <laughs> right? If you have kids, yeah, and you can, okay, even for a second, consider how you would react to one of them dying. I mean, it's impossible right. to sit here and actually think, how would I feel if this happened to my child? Right, because you can't take yourself to that length. You don't. <laughs> you don't want to. No, time. you certainly don't. Okay, but this is okay. Uh, I'm King. You've seen this before. You had children. Oh yeah. Uh, Lord, you've seen it before you had children? Oh, yeah. Okay, I have too. Did your opinion after having kids of this movie, did it change? A little bit. A little bit, but to be honest, I, I've, I've got, I've had one view of this movie and it's been, you know, just fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's always been hard watching the kid, you know, die and everything. Right. Oh, and I think For it, everybody, you know, just, you yeah, know, it's, it's, it's not good for anybody in this movie, but, um... I don't know. I guess it really hasn't. I mean, rewatching it when that scene does happen, um, yeah, it, it hit me a little bit, a little differently, I guess. Sure, but didn't really. I don't think it hurt, hurt affected me that much, to be honest. But it, I'm pretty sensitive. I think that scene pushed me, you know, to tears. Really, the most recently I watched your kids. it. Yeah, that's all yeah. I gotta say. <laughs> it's it's scary to think about, but I mean, I know <clears throat> this most recent rewatch, and I seen it. I mean, I'm just sitting there, and I'm telling you, like, I am pleading for Lewis to not fall and to get him. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, like, it's that classic moment where you're yelling at the screen, and I know he's not going to get there, <laughs> and I know you're going to hear all the twisted metal and the screeching and the, the the crash, and then you see the shoe fly up in the air. And then you get Lewis just with that primal scream and the, the, the flashes of the, the photos of him being born. That's rough. Yeah. That's rough. That is rough stuff. That is probably the most heartbreaking scene I have ever seen in a horror movie. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Coming from the mayor. Yeah. Most heartbreaking is, scene ever. It's a powerful scene. It is. And it's and it's perfectly set up but and, and it's executed perfectly by Mary Lambert. Because it starts off with this perfect day, right? They're having yeah. this nice picnic in a field. It's nice and windy. They're flying kites. Everybody's laughing, having a good time. And then this unspeakable tragedy happens. And then this 
and at this point, this is where this movie get, becomes a hard watch for me because mm-hmm. it goes to those dark places. Getting to so and the book, the uh, kite flying part happens separately, and it's not a really important difference, but the movie portrays that the kite flying scene is where he runs in the road and he's, you know because this kite gets away from him. right in the book they have their kite flying day everything is, goes off without a hitch and and then on a totally separate day they're playing like a chase me daddy chase me daddy game where gage uh runs in the road and his dad just doesn't get to him in time and what do you which one do you like better actually? i think the movie the movie did better on that too that's that's the thing like there's a lot of Stephen King books that are maybe better than the movie, but yeah. they really did a good job in this movie, and, and he was helping with it, too. So maybe, you know, his afterthoughts on the book mm-hmm. were like, hey, maybe I should have done this and this and this, and, and, you know, advised that to the movie. And so that's maybe what was better. Yes, he uh, Stephen King really was. like that. He was about, to, he lived 20 minutes away yeah. from where they were filming. He was on set like every day. Yeah, basically. And uh, he wasn't the only one. Here's a couple other names that I thought uh, were kind of interesting that were regulars that hung out on the set. Charlie Sheen was one. And mm-hmm. Kamadul Jabbar. Really? Kamadul Jabbar. Why uh, were they there? Uh, they, My name they is both... Roger Murdoch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No, you're Kareem Abdul Jabbar. <laughs> Listen, kid. I'm not. That's they hilarious. Seen airplane. No, they both knew somebody. I believe Charlie Sheen was uh, friends with David Anderson, who was a special effects artist who uh, ended up meeting, well, actually getting engaged to Heather Langenkamp, mm-hmm. who played, um, uh, oh my gosh, Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. So, which Miko Hughes ended up being her son in that movie. Yeah, interestingly, right. interestingly yeah. enough. So, but yeah, uh, I can't remember who it was that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar knew, but he knew somebody on set, and he kind of he was just he hung out. That's awesome. But uh, Stephen King, I thought this was really cool, and uh, I gained a lot of respect for him on this. Uh, he really pushed hard to have this movie filmed in Maine, mm-hmm. where it takes place, instead of being you know shipped up to Canada or you know up to Washington. You know, something yeah. out there on the West Coast or on some kind of back lot. He really wanted to get that authentic Maine feel. And he also wanted to give back to his home state because, you know, he's proud of where he comes from and he wanted to bring some of that revenue to, you know, his home state instead of Hollywood. And I I don't know, I gained a lot of respect for him about that. I thought that was really cool. Location, location, location. Right. Consequently, the 2019 Pet Cemetery is filmed in Canada. Ah, yeah. See, already a downer for me. And has no influence <laughs> from Stephen King. He's uh, not been reported to be on set every day. Yeah. So he's basically or at all ever. unattached to this movie, more well, or less, from what, what it sounds like, huh? So, <clears throat> so Denise Crosby in this movie mm-hmm. is Rachel Creed. What are you guys' thoughts on her? To be honest, she was better than Dale Midkiff, in my opinion. Um. I and maybe you can provide I'm right some. There, I mean, it's she's right, right, barely better than him. And it, I was gonna say maybe you can provide. She's a, not a likable person in the book or the movie, though. So she seems highly unreasonable and irrational. She right? is, but she's we, we trauma had, with her childhood. Right. We we get some backstory into that, and I and that makes me want to kind of give her a pass to a degree, you know. But and maybe you can provide a little insight to what she is in the book more more. But does the. Uh, Goldstein, does he pull out the checkbook in the movie? And she, they show the scene where him and uh, Lewis 
have this encounter before in the past where Lewis and her are dating and he doesn't want him to date her so he literally pulls out his checkbook and is going to write him a check to tell him to piss off and stay away from my daughter forever and he like they have a huge you know falling out like from cocktails earlier well we we don't have that scene in the movie but it's definitely implied and you get the hint that uh rachel's father erwin is not a fan of lewis yeah yeah pretty quickly and i tell you he wasn't in the movie very often but i hated him he's stuck up i hated him i i he he's effective he's very effective at it yeah but he did a good job of me not liking him at all. <laughs> but I didn't like his daughter that much either. But again, she was traumatized through childhood. Zelda was a huge, you know, sore spot for her. Right. And, and I'm glad we her. have that. Yeah. You but, know, they, uh, her and Lewis always conflicted. You know, she, he, she would say something and he wouldn't agree with. She, you know, he would say something she didn't agree with. Well, they have all you kinds know, they of sex work. in the book. I mean... Really? Oh, really? Yeah, it's kind of annoying, but that's Stephen King. Right. He's always throwing that in just to but, uh, Yeah, he... They're just you know, going bickering back and forth and everything, and then um, there's a part where um, she's try- talking about Zelda for the first time with him mm-hmm. and everything, and <laughs> she gets done with the story, and she's crying and everything. He gets up, he's like... <laughs> she's like, where are you going? He's like, I'm getting you a Valium. He's, she's like... You know, I don't take. He's like tonight. You do. Yeah. He's like no. <laughs> He's. I found that part really funny. Yeah, I don't that know. was funny. There's a few parts in this movie I just found astoundingly funny. Right. Like when you're in the pet cemetery for the first time. Oh yes. Fred Gwynn and her. She's she she said something she didn't agree with Fred Gwynn you know saying or something right. like that. And Lewis is. He's like here. She's like give me the baby. And he's just like. Babe. They exchange their exchange of looks. Subtle look it is, is so great, funny because, you know? like, hey man, calm your woman wife. You calm your wife yeah. down. <laughs> He's just talking about death in front of the kids, and right? Doesn't like it. Well, in this movie, I don't think that Lewis and Rachel and Rachel actually. Um, I don't think they did a very good job of explaining death to their child, Ellie. Yeah. Um, well, it's obvious that Rachel just kind of wanted to skip over it because her right. uh, uh, interpretation of what death is like it's just it's denial basically. Yeah, and uh, you know, and it's funny because like that that exchange of looks that Dale and uh, or uh, Dale Midkiff and Fred Gwynn exchange at the pet cemetery <laughs> for the first time. Judd gives him a look. He's like, "It's like, what's with your woman?" And he right. gives a look. Dale gives a look back. He's kind of like, "Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, dude." You know, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's that's hilarious. But that kind of gives you a little insight of how irrational Rachel is yeah. when it comes to talking about death and dying, and it proves to you know, in typical fashion, it has a lot of foreshadowing. It turns to be a big disadvantage for him, right near the end. So, poor Ellie. <laughs> kid she so don't know she don't know what's going on <laughs> so let's talk about Ellie here a little bit so it kind of seems like Ellie who was played by Blaze Birdall kind of has her own version of The Shining like Danny Torrance okay see I didn't know if it was just Pascal using a one time deal and he's just trying to you know get to the family you know and warn them about 
yeah. what uh, Lewis is going to do and everything. So you feel just Pascal was just influencing whoever he needed to to try to get the point across. Right. Say, hey. That's that's what I got from it. Okay. Think, you know, because it transgressed to um, Rachel Creed and everything. So. Right. I think I think he was just trying to plug in, but I, that's cool that you think of it like yeah, that. Yeah, I it, that's what it did. It kind of made me think she had like a connection with Pascal, like Danny Torrance did with Dick Halloran yeah. in The Shining. Hmm. Um, but that gets us into another character, <clears throat> Pascal, who is a huge character in this movie. A lot bigger than he was in the book. That was one thing that they didn't do as much, or they decided to do more in the movie. It was using him as a, you know talking point for kind of to lead the the charge on his feelings about the pet cemetery and stuff they, they didn't use him in the book much like oh, he, had, he had a ghost part but uh, maybe even two ghost parts but he came back a lot more in the movie than he did in the book okay I don't know that's really relevant but the, they substituted a character at the end where where he's carrying Rachel to the pet cemetery and mm-hmm. uh Pascal's trying to stop him from it. That not in the book. There was a totally different friend of Lewis's that was uh, trying to talk him out of it. There, there's also Judd had a wife in the book. Her name was not, Norma. Yeah, Is that correct. Norma, and okay. she was a very integral part that I think they maybe could have done better if they used her. Maybe the new one will. Okay. Well, and I and that's funny that you say that because I remember when I first watched this when I was younger, I think it was because it was known that they were native to this area that the Creeds had just moved to, that the character of Missy and Judd, I thought they were married or at least like brother and sister hmm. when I was younger. So I, it's interesting. Did, did they substitute any of the things that Missy did in this in the movie the maid. Uh, that? Judd's wife, Norma, did in the book. Not really. Okay. Um, Norma, more or less, was just kind of there to give the kids cookies in the kitchen, and she okay. was the friendly, you know, grandmother type that hmm. was, you know, talking to the kids and stuff to keep them occupied while the adults talked about death and stuff and away from them but <laughs> right uh and then she ends up having a heart attack in the kitchen and dropping the cookie jar and that's when lewis creed comes in and you know gives her uh compressions and and then they take her to the hospital and she's checked out and they said wow you know she's lucky that you were there because you basically saved her life and of course that gives judd the reason to owe him one you know when church dies Okay. In the movie, that was the thing I thought that lacked was Judd's reasoning for his taking motives. his petty little cat to bury him up there. Just so Ellie wouldn't yeah. grow up without her, you know, her cat and everything. See, I just interpreted that he Judd was kinda going along with you know, with Rachel how she was with her irrational of behavior death. of death, you yeah. know, like, well, okay, being Since sympathetic, she, you know, for the child. Since you don't understand it here, mm. you know, let's delay this for a little bit. Right, and make it way more complicated. Even yeah. Especially since you know what's going to happen. And that's something I want to talk about. It's kind of obvious that Pascal is an angel for good. Yeah. Do you view Judd as an angel <clears throat> for bad? No, not necessarily. He's just a... Uh, 
he cares about humanity, he you know, and people's feelings and everything like that. Which turns out to be a fault, you know. He just wants people to have their loved ones back and it's just not a it's just not a good idea to go to the Micmac burial grounds and right. bury a loved one. So I mean, I mean he's got more of a uh, like a moral compass of right and wrong, but also he knows about something that's just so you know it's awesome and amazing that he can't hold the secret to. You know, it's something like I can't, I can't you know resist showing you this. You know, right. Because I know about it, and I don't know. The only reason why I asked that question is because director Mary Lambert is the one that suggested this. This was her interpretation while filming. This is kind of the the perspective she wanted to go with. And mm-hmm. I I never initially really viewed Judd as like a bad angel, but I I see what she was going for. And I guess the scene where you know Judd calls over to the house and Lewis answers he's like oh we got a cat over here and he's like that oh, sounds like church when he when Lewis is coming across the street you see a close up of Judd and he's standing there with his coat on with the hood up that was supposed to be kind of like a little bit of a nod of mm-hmm. like he's kind of this harbinger of doom and you know like he's not death but he's this figure for not good deeds <laughs> so I, I thought that was interesting hmm. but uh but going back to uh, Brad Greenquist's portrayal of uh, Pascal, the we see him for the first time where it's just a scene out of nowhere where it's obvious that somebody has been into a horrible accident and he's getting carried into this hospital and he becomes a patient of Lewis's and he's trying to save his life and it's clear that he didn't. And I mean, he gave him a good 20 seconds. <laughs> I mean... I think it was edited for time. <laughs> yeah. It didn't seem like he helped him out that long, but I, I he looked you. dead on arrival. Yeah, he, he wasn't in good shape. But I'll tell you, <laughs> when he snapped too, after you see him just, you know, after you believed him to be dead, and you see, like, the stuff oozing out I of his head. Oh, I yeah. Kid, man. I, Absolutely. That scared the crap out of me. It's freaky. Yeah. And what he says to Lewis and that voice and how they have it altered is equally creepy. Yeah. Uh, such an effective scene. And the makeup they did with... Brad Greenquist is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in that scene, there's a little uh, tidbit of Cujo. Oh yeah, in that scene, there's a was it like a little poster or something like that on on the walls. My question is, if Pascal's goal is to not have Lewis use the Micmac burial grounds, why show him exactly where it's at? Well, he 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 was just telling him because you know. Church is buried to die. He probably can tell, you know, he, he, he knows the path is what's going to happen already, you know. Okay. He's trying to just, he's, he's telling him, do not go there. Just don't go there. Next day. Right. Just, I just calling him up. Hey, let's go to the Micmac burial ground, bury church and everything. He should have stopped there. But, you know, curiosity killed, killed the cat. cat. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Perum, perum. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting because at the time, I don't believe anybody but Judd knew where the Big Mac burial ground right. was. Right, the secret could have died with Judd. Oh, absolutely. He had not said anything. Absolutely. 
And I absolutely love the stone look of the Micmac Burial Grounds. Mm-hmm. It kind of remind me if uh, Crop Circles hung out with the Blair Witch for a little bit. <laughs> right. I think that's what you'd get. But uh, I really thought the uh, aerial views that they had uh, of the burial of the ground up there, I, I thought they were just really effective yeah. and just really well done and just creepy, unsettling. It just added more flavor to this mm-hmm. uncomfortable movie, you know. That's it a ma- long hike, too, from the oh, yeah. cemetery to the McMahon. That's another funny part of Fred Gwynn. You know, he's like, oh. Almost there it's like he's talking to himself, like, <laughs> oh, it's almost there now. It's almost there now, you know. Yeah. That's a pretty uh, good impression. Yeah, I try, Fred Gwynn. All right, do it. So, <laughs> what? Y- you know. <laughs> do what? The, the Sometimes. Oh, sometimes. Dead is better. That's not bad. That's, that's all right. It's okay. not bad. You got one, King? I don't really... I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of a good Herman Munster quote, but mm. Marilyn, better get back home in time. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> not even close. No. <laughs> I don't even know <laughs> what that <laughs> was. No. Not even close. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, so all right, here's my. Note. <coughs> Sometimes did is better. That's not bad. Well, yeah, that's yeah. not bad. I'm not a. Sorry, Fred Gwynn. Stockton Highway. You guys tell us who had the better uh, impersonation. Lord Ketchum or the mayor? Yeah. Oh, yeah the, the king's not the even the in this. The king's not even in this discussion. That was a bad one. <laughs> that was a bad one. Oh, <laughs> he threw in the I towel. I couldn't think of a good quote. I just, That's funny. Oh, oh boy. So, I want to talk about the little sub-story that we have here with uh, Timmy Baderman that Judd talks yeah. about. That is chilling stuff. Yeah. And that's where you get... The sometimes dead is better. Quote by Judd. His grief that he shows when he is telling Lewis, you know, that he may have caused Gage's death. I mean, it's just, again, he's one of those actors that when he speaks, you listen. And I just hung on every word he had to say. I believed it. I felt like this was a man that was absolutely grief stricken and broken up. Such a credit to Fred Gwynn. Yeah. But, but he didn't uh, just lose his wife. I mean, in all fairness, what do you mean, Fred Quinn? I mean, in the movie, Norma. <clears throat> no, she wasn't in the movie. That was only. I'm aware of that, but I'm, I'm I'm referencing it as. Oh, okay. Pretending it wasn't the movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, I got so you. There. Uh, We're reviewing the movie. Uh, yeah, We're yeah, reviewing yeah. the movie, buddy. <laughs> Sometimes that is better. Hey, there you go. That's, That's good. Oh, there we go. He, okay, right. I think it's He's a three. There. I think it's a He's three back into the vote. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, all right, with let the late Hail Mary. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in the flashback, did anybody catch Timmy Baderman when he grabs his father and he's yeah. in the, the house in the front? He said, "Love dead, hate living." Hate living. Yep. That is a uh, direct reference to the Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. Oh, really? Yes, hmm. Boris Karloff uttered those words whenever Elsa hmm. Lanchester refused his love. I was wondering why he talked so simple, you Didn't know, like that. Because mm. Gage, you know, he could talk like it was perfect, yeah. you know, sentence form and everything. This well, guy. I mean, I don't know how long Timmy Baderman, I mean, because did, did, he, did he die in the war and he got shipped home, or did he come? I think so, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Maybe he was dead longer. Hmm. He wasn't as fresh. Yeah, maybe. So, okay. In the book, he had like conversations with people, and he was just kind of slow. 
Okay. Okay. And it okay. made it seem like he just was different and slow and sling blade. Sling blade, yeah. <laughs> there you Ron go. Tater. Mm-hmm. So that when they lit that house on fire to to take care of Timmy Baderman, did his dad was in there too, right? Yes. Yeah, he yeah. Took himself out. Man. Yeah. It's a pretty gruesome scene. It is. So it's yeah, intense. um, you know, um Fred Gwynn's got a lot of bad blood on his hands throughout this movie. He really does. This is a guy who <clears throat> I mean, I don't feel like he is a bad man. No. no. I believe his intentions are for the best. It just seems like he is fool found me himself. Once. Shame on you know, you fool me twice, shame on me. Mm-hmm. Fool me three times. I don't know. I guess you're just asking for I mean, trouble. Come on. You did that better than George W. What did he say? Uh, I don't remember. He he messed it up. Oh, did he mess it up? He's like, fool me once, shame on me. Uh, fool me <laughs> twice, shame on you. Uh, you okay, can't so fool me three times is what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, oh it was something God. like that. It was something like that. <laughs> we're, we're into the impersonations today. Yeah, we're just going hog <laughs> wild with it. Just let them rip, boys. Explore the space. That's why we call it this. So I want to talk about Missy's uh, character in this, played by Missy Blomert. Oh, she did great. She only had like three scenes, but man. I guess her and uh, Fred Gwynn worked together a good bit on their accents. Yeah. And her suicide, I thought, was gut-wrenching. It was it was creepy, too. I didn't understand it when I was a kid, to be honest, when I okay. watched this movie. I really didn't understand. I was like, why is she killing herself? Yeah, she's... Sick, but right. I just don't get it. You know, depression. It was kind of you know, on a sudden. I don't know. I thought her character was a little bit forgettable, but I, she's only in three scenes. But. I really liked her character. I thought she was effective. Uh, the piano score that went along with her suicide, uh, I thought it was really effective as well. And I kind of thought it that scene could have been maybe extended a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. That would have made it a little more effective, but then I'm starting to think maybe how brief and sudden it is is why it is so effective for me at least. You right. know, what are your guy? I mean, did you you, you kind of alluded to I'm their just, uh, king that you took it or lo- left it? Just forgettable. I mean, okay, I guess I just hmm. she was there and she was gone, and then the movie kind of you know movie went carried on. on, and I I forgot about her. I mean, that's uh, the best I can put it. Okay. Was kind of forgettable to me. What about you? What about you, Lord Ketchum? I, I like that. I like that scene. It's like a I said, Yeah, yeah. Was it a way to set up uh, Stephen King to preside over the funeral yeah. so he got his uh, <laughs> his cameo in for the movie? That's the easy answer. Well, he could have done that at the Gage's funeral, I think. Probably been a little more effective. Yeah. That whole scene, Gage's funeral scene, man, was pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very... That was Man. spot on to the book. That that was, was it? spot on to the book. Or you know, talking about just seeing the slightest peak of his hand as it as yeah. the coffin opened and closed as it hit the floor and like. I guess uh, a lot of uh, executives there with Paramount they really disliked that fight scene, really? and they really they thought it was in poor taste. And Mary Lambert fought, no pun intended, <laughs> to keep that in there. Now I guess it took numerous trips to the editing room but she fought to keep that in there and uh, I don't know was it too over top for you yeah, either one of you guys it do you feel important. like it added it to fits. the effectiveness yeah. it fits I okay mean, 
It was uncomfortable to watch, yeah, but I mean, it's part of the movie. It solidifies the hatred between oh, yeah. Rachel's dad and Lewis. Absolutely. There is no you love know. for Thomas. At that point, there's really not... I don't know. He calls him and apologizes a couple of days yeah, later. Yeah, I, I hated I, that I half-hearted apology. Uh, yeah, that was okay. I wouldn't accept that one. That was weak. Yeah, <laughs> Lewis has a lot of He's got negative a lot. thoughts about that in the book. Yeah, yeah, I... Yeah, he was... He was. I hated him. I hated him so much. The the half hearted apology he gives him at the airport. Mm. It's like really, that's. So, it, at Rachel's parents' house, that creepy. I, I need to talk about it because I know where you're going. Man, it really mm. it hit me hard when I was a kid. I was like, why would people put that in their house? That painting. Mm. It's in their living room, yes. and it's also in their hallway, in the stair hallway. Or going up the stairs right yeah. there on the wall. Why do you have two pictures of that? Oh, well, I mean, That's it's just... an obvious foreshadow to Gage because it's the mm-hmm. outfit and. Uh... Oh, see, okay. I never really. I never oh, okay. It's that, also actually. similar to the dress that Zelda wears in yes. the old scene. That's yeah. right. Like, yeah. That's right. It could be easily interpreted as either. Ugh. That is the creepiest painting. That's one of the creepiest paintings I've ever seen. It is creepy. It's, it's pretty off putting. <laughs> That's the way a lot of the old eighteenth century British painters did stuff kind of I mean the almost dwarf like looking yeah. features. Mm-hmm. Explain it a well and the cat even looked like it had like a human esque kind of face to it and everything. It's just I don't know. Really bothersome. <laughs> Good it job, is. Mary. I wonder if they just found that at an auction or something. I was like, Oh, that'll fit perfectly. Ugh. I don't know. There was two pictures. I, I I was just like, why is there two pictures of that? I get one. All right. Is it, are they the same exactly? They're not because the one was in no. the living room. Okay. Well, there's some. The other one's going down the down the stairwell. I can't yeah. remember comparison. I mean, are they similar? They are the, the exact same. Oh, they're exact same. They're the exact same picture. Maybe and it's not like it's, a, it, two of it's not like it's a family member or something. Okay. You know. It's just they a have weird just seen painting. it subtly and like not thought, oh, it's in there twice in two different places. Okay. If I were to make a movie, I would like to put that like in the background as as like an Easter, <laughs> an Easter egg, egg or yeah. something. I really That's would. Because it, it's, I mean, I, I I like it, but man, yeah. it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we want you to see it all the time while you're in this house. It'd be a good like a parody, like a haunted house. Like the Wayne's Brothers Haunted House movie or something. Oh, like. yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's in the background of every scene or something to the point where you're like, all right, it's getting old. Stop. Uh, so, a couple things. Uh, producer Lindsay Doran, when she was uh, back in the early, <clears throat> early 80s, she was with Embassy Pictures. And she tried to get this movie made back with them. And they passed on it. And when she joined Paramount in 1985, she tried to get executives to greenlight this movie and they passed on it and both times the reason was because the executives minds was the time for Stephen King movies had come and, uh, has come and gone and there's no more gas left in the tank but it wasn't until the writers strike in 1988 where they were kind of scrambling to get scripts that were already ready to go they just needed you know a little bit of tweaking here and there and you can just go film mm-hmm. and she proposed it and that's how this got greenlit huh out of uh, desperation, basically. I thought that was interesting. Wow. But she tried back in the early 80s to get that uh, to get this going. 
But uh, I want to talk a little bit about the the Stephen King aspect of how the book came to. So this is actually based off of a real pet cemetery in Orrington, Maine. And Gage's death scene was based off a real experience that Stephen mm-hmm. King had with his own son uh, running towards a busy road. But he actually reached him in time. And in addition to this, Stephen King's daughter had a pet cat named Smucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also contributed, and shortly thereafter, he came up with the story for Pet Cemetery. And I thought that was pretty interesting that he had a, uh, you know, a brush with, uh, you know, personal tragedy himself there, and he was able to, he was inspired, mm-hmm. you know, to come up with something as dark. And accordingly, too, the sign for the Pet Cemetery was spelled inaccurately like he does on the book. Yep. By a local, you know. The kids, yeah, because kids, they didn't know how to spell it, right? Yep. I thought that was pretty interesting, too. Um, so they spell it S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y? That's correct. That's awesome. And since this was filmed Actually, on... they spelled it Pets Cemetery. That's Spelling right. the same, but they spelled it P-E-T-S. That's right, because the woman that kind of is the overseer of it, I guess, from the documentary, she uh, it's actually in the background, mm-hmm. the, the original so, sign for it, so that's pretty cool. I yeah. thought that was neat. But uh, since this was actually filmed on location uh, at Ellsworth, Maine, I guess they had numerous open auditions to fill about 500 uh, parts in this film, and they had locals from all over the county showing up, and oh, yeah. this is where they got... Uh, the the uh, the flight attendant, the car rental woman, uh, the young truck driver, the truck driver, uh, young Rachel. Um, you know that's where they got all these characters. Was there any of the uh, farmers from our previous review of the children that was like, <laughs> "Yeah, my daughter wants to be in one of your movie films"? They didn't make this one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, throw that back in there. That's funny. Another thing I want to discuss was the uh, owners of the actual Creed house. It was an older couple that they allowed use of their home as long as everything was put back the way it was before. Yeah. That was their only stipulation. And they actually owned the uh, Judd's house, which was across the street. But what you see of Judd's house is actually a facade, that old Victorian-style look. They built that onto a right regular-style Yes, regular style looking home, and they lived in that house. Yeah, while they filmed, so <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. Didn't they have it painted aged? And yeah, then they realized after they painted it weathered and aged that they needed to go back and film where Judd was young and it was supposed to be you know brand new pristine, back in like the twenties and everything. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. And uh, when they burned Judd's house, the real house never caught fire, but it did end up getting burned, and there was some damage oh, yeah. to the original house. Oh, yeah. God, it was so only like to... 20 feet away from right. it, you know? Yeah, I guess when it <laughs> went up, it went up. And I guess uh, Dale Midkiff, when he's carrying Rachel out, he actually got second-degree burns from that. When you see him, he's walking, he kind of like yeah. winces at one point. That is legit. That's where he got second-degree burns. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I thought that was interesting also. Um, but I want to talk about the path to Pet Cemetery itself. So the trail that is behind the Creed House is actually in front of the house. It kind of runs along the road. Mm-hmm. And then the actual Pet Cemetery was a town over. And then the deadfall where the trees are all 
you know, build up and where you see the glowing blue light from behind. That was on a hiking trail at Acadia National Park, which was about 20 miles away. And the granite quarry scene was also at Acadia National Park on Mount Desert Island. Yeah. So that cemetery itself was a mishmash <laughs> mosaic of different locations all over the place. And I felt like they did a great job of making it seem like one organic mm-hmm. journey. And I thought that was, again, another But if you're in Maine and plan on visiting filming locations, you're going to have to do a little trekking back oh, and forth. Oh, definitely. Especially right. when you're trying to go to the Micmac Burial Ground. It was built on an actual mountaintop. Right. And everything. Mm-hmm. So. And that was the thing that was interesting. When you see Judd and Lewis climbing up there, that's actually Fred that's Gwynn. He's, he's, he's climbing that. That's him. That's not Spry. a stunt double. Yeah, he nice was. But uh, yeah. another thing... Uh, talking about Gage's death I thought was really interesting is how they set that up and I think how they set that up was why that scene was so effective and torturous as it is mm-hmm. and continues to be they used mirrors yeah. I mean because it really looks like Miko Hughes is out there in the middle of the road with this semi speeding towards him and I guess they had you know puppets and you know, things that they had made up of Gage and they tried to use and it didn't look right and they came up with this setup and I don't know exactly how complex of an issue it was, but man, they made it look fantastic. Yeah, because you, you got to be safety first. You know? Right, absolutely. Have, you know. and, and I think that's just a huge credit to, again, to the, you know, the very creative the way movie. to shoot that, you know, very, very creative. And what they did with the, uh, they used a piece of glass for, for Church's eyes. They, mm-hmm. how, they used a, they'd flip a piece of glass that would reflect off the eye. And the cat's eyes were the only thing that would pick up on it. Mm-hmm. And, again, really simple stuff. And it's so effective. And it's just, again, I go back to practical effects are always better. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And uh, the cat that got to play Church did it. I mean, that was a good actor too. You know, that guy well, did a great I, job. I believe <laughs> there was about seven cats. Oh, okay. That they, they used. They were. Uh, I have this in my notes somewhere. If I can find it. Yeah, seven British short hair cats were used. That's right. Yeah, different kind of cat that's that's used in the book, though, right? Well, that's the thing. Like the new one is is a calico. Is that what it is? Uh, maybe. Well. I don't remember him being that descriptive in the book of what the cat is, so uh, I don't think it really matters. Right on. <clears throat> I know that they well the this new movie that's coming out. I know that the, that that cat looks like the cat that's on the cover of the book. Yeah, yeah so, more. Yeah, it does. Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. right. for short. Going to the ending here a little bit, um, where Gage calls to Lewis <laughs> on the phone after he's reanimated. That is creepy how he starts saying, now I want to play with you. Man. (laughs) God, that's just, it's so unsettling. So unsettling. It's just, yikes. I hid my face a few times when I was young. Credit to the young actor. Absolutely. Wow. You know, I hate to say it, man. I think Mickey Hughes is a better actor in this movie than Fred Gwynn. I really do. I mean, I don't, you can't get another, I don't think you can really understand, I mean, understand the the aspect of how well this kid did. At that age, yeah. At that age, I mean. You're not wrong. They could have never had gotten another kid to play this role. Right. Absolutely. And I know you can't 
you can't do that with Fred. You can say that the same thing with Fred Gwynn, but right. I I I like Mika Hughes's portrayal better than Fred Gwynn. To be wow. honest. That's bold. Yeah. I hear you, though. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's another thing that Mary Lambert really fought for because the executives, they wanted to use twins, you yeah. know, because then they could get more, you know, uh, shoots, shoots out, you know, because they have, you know, the child labor laws. And that's kind of what they ran into with the Ellie character. Uh, there were twins, mm-hmm. but Blaze Birdall uh, ended up playing more of the roles than her sister. Mm-hmm. So, and what was her sister's name? I had that in here, too. Yeah, I'm glad they got past that. Uh, I'm glad they got past that law. Let Miku play this role. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. super effective. Like I said, I'm not a big fan of creepy kids and horror, but oh. man, this I think this one is the uh, the crown jewel as far as performances. But uh, when Lewis doses Church at the end, when he kind of lures him in with the stake, that's a real cat when he does that, right? When he, I mean, because I mean, if it's not well, yeah, that cat, yeah, sure okay. looked real. I mean, I'm it sure just it wasn't a real surrender. But how do they get him to play dead? That's the thing. I, some cats are just trained properly, you know, for, okay. for movies and everything. I believe, you know, I that wasn't a, a fake cat. I think the only fake cat that they used was when Church was found dead Discovered. alongside the road, right? You know, clearly. It was all frozen and stuff. And that was stuck a dead cat, to yeah. them. right? But I think every other cat was a. a legit cat so that's what I'm saying I, I thought that scene was interesting because it sure looked like a real cat but I mean I guess you playing could dead and everything I mean I guess you can teach a cat to play dead I yeah. suppose that's not yeah. he's too... supposed to be walking very like drunkard and like broken looking according right. to the book but I mean you can't really train a cat right. to do that kind of that's true acting mm-hmm. but still I, mean, I don't have a problem with the way the church looked but hearing uh, Gage after Lewis doses him, where he just wails, oh man, that's just that's heartbreaking. I mean, this is I mean he has now become this unspeakable, horrible abomination, more or less. But man, that that I don't know that scene gets me. It's heartbreaking, and he's walking it's away around the corner, really looking. He's saying, "No fair, no fair," <laughs> and then he hits his head on the wall, and, and he, he just falls, falls back. back. Like, yes. Oh. It's heartbreaking, man. Yes. I mean, not as heartbreaking as when he died the first time, but man, it was that was really well done, executed extremely well. But so Lewis torches the house, okay? <laughs> Nobody reports this fire. Like it there's a scene where it's you see in the foreground that it's the smoldering house of Judd and you see across the street to the Creed house. Mm-hmm. And like nobody. Well, he reported. he immediately goes to bury Rachel, and right. then comes back, and yeah, there's nobody there. And the, there's no sirens. You don't hear any commotion or anything. Right. I don't the know. House I just, is probably still burning. Right. I kind of <laughs> I, I kind of thought that was a little odd, but <coughs> out of city limits. I mean, uh, presumably. Right. Eh. But. This movie has its flaws. <laughs> yes, it is. This is not a perfect I movie. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't take too much away from it, though. No, yeah, it's pretty close. But I thought uh, reanimated H- Rachel when she came back, her makeup—I thought it was awesome. That's oh, disgusting. Yeah, that was when she's gross. there and you see the stuff oozing out from the the it's eye like socket. Green. Oh, yeah. it yeah. was. Uh, more involved than the book and again that's probably credit Stephen King being on set and saying let's do a little bit something more with this right the way the book ends he's sitting at a table 
and she walks up behind him, puts her hand, her cold, dead hand on his shoulder, as it's described, and says, darling, and that's literally, you know, fade to black yeah. in the book. Well, See, there, there was reshoots for this ending, for sure. Yeah, they, uh, they called... Uh, Denise Crosby back in for reshoots because that was actually one of the proposed endings mm. and it was where she puts her hand on his shoulder and he turns around and then it's fade to black and then you hear him scream mm. and another uh, okay. reshoot uh, potential one they had was uh, she came home and after she got home the phone rings and it's Ellie Mm-hmm. And she answers the phone, and she has, like, a brief conversation. But the thing I took away from it was, quote, they're, that we're going to be a happy family. She tells mm-hmm. Ellie this on the phone. And mm-hmm. then she looks at the screen, and then she smiles, and then it fades to black. Mm-hmm. Eh, eh. You know. I like the ending we got. I, I, I agree. I thought it was very effective. I liked it. Um, it kind of seems like it's a little more true to the book, uh, but they definitely it's they wanted sick. it's very <laughs> sick. It's very yeah. morbid, but they wanted a more they wanted a gorier, shocking ending, yeah. you know, well. which is interesting. And that was from the executives with you know they push they gave pushback about you know the uh, the fight scene at the at Gage's funeral, mm-hmm. you know, and I am like, but then you're gonna you're okay let's rant this. this. <laughs> yeah, I I, I kind of feel like it's you know I thought that was interesting, so. Um, and we get followed up there with the end credits. We get the Ramones, who is uh, Stephen King is a massive fan of, mm-hmm. and I guess D.D. Ramone wrote that song "Pet Cemetery" in about forty minutes. Really? Yep. Hmm. Good job. Was, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. And I guess uh, the Ramones are uh, pretty relevant in the book too, from what I understand. But it's uh, just, Blitz Creek Bop instead. Yeah, he keeps. Repeating that line and said, even in the most inconvenient of moments, the hey, ho, let's go. And it's like, okay, you know. Yeah. But they, they he kind of overshoots that. Huh. Gotcha. For whatever reason. I guess he likes that song. All right. Well, I mean, unless anybody else has anything else they want to talk about, uh, I think we're set to go into our wrap ups, yeah, ratings, definitely. recommendations. Mm-hmm. All right. Absolutely. Who wants to take the reins on this? I'll go ahead and start. All right. Um, yeah, this movie is one of the definitely top three scariest uh, Stephen King films that have been made. I've never read the book. I want to. I've heard it's scarier than the movie. Would you? What would you? What would you say to that, Dave? Is it scarier? I don't feel like it scared me. I mean. And my wife apparently read it a long time ago and didn't get past the part where they described Pascal's uh, head wounds and oh, stuff really? because I guess she just was really disturbed by it. I got through that without much <laughs> okay. problem, but I mean, I guess I'm a little more okay. Well, I, I do want to I do want to uh, read this book. Um, this is a very this is a big classic for me. Mm. I've seen this when I was like seven years old um it 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 really hit home i am terrified from it learned a lot about death from this movie um you know it's it's a if you if you want to show your kids this movie (laughs) you'll learn about death um really quick yeah um and how you should handle it i guess um not Burying your loved ones in the right. Mac burial You shouldn't grounds. do that. Mm. Yeah, just don't do it. It's a big no-no. <laughs> listen to Pascal. <laughs> Please listen to him. Um, 
Fred Gwynn knocks it out of the park. Mika Hughes knocks it out of the park. The other acting is kind of subpar. Um, I like Missy uh, Dandridge's character. Susan Blomberg. Yeah, I, that was... I really appreciated her character, even though it was short. But she she really hit the the main, what you know how you talk and everything like that. Helped set the tone of the movie. I give this movie a nine out of ten. It's it's about as close as you can get to a, a perfect horror movie. I know IMDb's got it rated rather low. I don't I don't understand it. Um, All around the board, this is a great film. It's kind of rated. You need to low. You, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. As far as the new movie coming out, though, I'm I'm not for it. I think it needs to be left alone. I don't think this is a, this is a movie should have never been remade. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> go watch the movie if you want to, but I, I probably won't until it comes out on. So you won't view it in theaters, but no, you I will, will watch it. I will watch it, but okay. it, I'm not I'm not re- running to the theaters to watch this movie. Not it's, this this movie should not be be remade. Okay, it's classic. All right, I'd say that about Christine too. <laughs> That's another Stephen King that I don't think they could remake. And they should for well, it would all be CGI and and that yeah, uh, yeah. practical. It's, it's one of those like I love it and I I'm I can't deny if they do remake it, I'll have to see it because I love it. It's just the same same wheelhouse as this. So it, mm, I agree with you, Ketchum. It's it's going to be tough to top. Absolutely, and especially. Jude and Gage. I mean, those are or Judd and Gage. Judd and Gage. What I said, Jude. Jude. Yeah. Oh, wow, it's getting late. Yeah, it's getting late. <laughs> hey, Jude. But no, I, I'm at a nine out of ten too. We're, nine out of ten. We're matching. Wow, we got a match. All right. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm. I mean. But you will go to the get, theaters to watch a new yeah, one. Yeah, because I'm curious and. Okay. It's, yeah, there's not a lot of good horror movies in the theater anymore, so. Yeah. When you get an opportunity, you might as well take it. I'm sure. Well, that's where I'm at. All right. Well, plain and simple, I love this movie. As I have already said to start off, depending upon what day you ask me, this might be my favorite. Well, it's Thursday. It. <laughs> where are you going to be tomorrow? I don't know. All right. Wherever the wind takes me. I'll ask you tomorrow then. There you go. We'll do that then. <laughs> Um, I mean, it does have some hang-ups and flaws, but I really think that they're just small, small nitpicks of mine, and I really don't feel that it has any large effect on my overall outlook on this movie. I do think Dale Midkiff's performance was uneven. Uh, like I said, I thought he was good at some points. Sometimes I thought he was just, you know, phoning it in and just kind of seemed forced. Denise Crosby, I thought she was a little bit flat as well. Um... But not, I knocking to... these, not knocking these. No, no, because, because it again it does. They did a good job, but it's just those it, parts are supposed to be when you're comparing it to the plain. performance how Miko Hughes did, you know, you know, and, and Fred Gwynn. Sure, just, I don't know. It just doesn't quite match up. Yeah, it fall, they know? fall flat. They right. definitely fall short for sure. And right. but again, I, I don't feel that it's anything that really takes away from the movie. Mm. It doesn't uh, no. take anything away from the no. viewing pleasure for me at least. Story's too good, right? Um, but I'd have to say uh, Dale Midkiff was uh, my least favorite actor, and this is probably my biggest hang-up with the movie, is him, mm-hmm. to be total truth with you guys. But overall, as an ensemble, I thought it was really good. Fred Gwynn steals the show, as does Miko Hughes. And, um, you know, I just wish I was able to sit on the porch 
yeah. with Judd Crandall and have a beer with him. Have you know that uh, you know just sit yeah. out there and just talk about life. I mean, and just listen to that man talk. I I, I could sit there for hours. <laughs> you know, and I thought it was really funny in the very beginning when uh, Lewis goes over and they're talking and Judd offers him a uh, Lewis a beer and he uh, says need a glass and. Lewis says no, and he's like, ah, good for you, you know, and it's just like, this is the guy I want to have a beer with, you know, I want to sit around and, you know, just hang out with this guy, and hopefully nobody or nothing that I truly love passes away, because he's going to lead me astray, Mm -hmm. but but, um, the makeup, the special effects, I thought were well done and well placed, Uh, I don't think anything really seemed forced, the the, uh, ending was gory, and it was shocking, but this was a huge credit to Mary Lambert as a director, and she absolutely hit this out of a, out of the park. Uh, on IMDb, it's got a 6.6 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes sitting at 50%, with an audience score of 59%, and a meta score of 38. I'm just going to say that I, I am astonished how criminally low, especially with the IMDb and the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is on this, because I am right there with you guys. This is a 9 out of 10 for me. It is All an three, ad- 9 yes, out of 10? Yes, we wow. are in consensus here. Okay. Uh, this is an absolute must-watch. Um, it, it, it does, after Gage's death, it becomes really hard. It's a hard watch, especially if you're a parent. Um, if you are a parent of a young child, if you watch this at that time for the first time, I mean, it's how far would you go? You know, that's, that's, that's the, that's the question really. And Lewis took it all the way and you can kind of see at a certain point in the movie, you know, he has a break with reality. Yeah. yeah. You know, where he's like, Oh, I'm going to fix this. It's going to be okay. It's, it's, you know, with, with, you know, church it was you know too long and with gage it was it was too long with rachel it's going to work he was so convinced well and i think he's kind of on a suicide mission too at this point you know sure. he lost his kid he lost his wife i know his daughter's away at the in-laws in chicago right he figures you know, that's a good place for her to be when you're at <clears> this <throat> level of uh traumatic loss i mean I could say any of us would do the same thing. I mean, mm. I don't know. <laughs> I, that's, I'm going to have to stay away from the Micmac if you, books. If you're aware <laughs> of that potential, you know. Right. Just that glimmer of hope. That chance. Hey, sure. Hey, sometimes dead is better. <laughs> and I'm just going to close it out with that. That's some true words right there. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, 9 out of 10 for me. This is a phenomenal movie. I own it. It holds incredible rewatchability. It is a movie that I actually, as difficult as it is to watch sometimes, it's not one of those after I'm done, I feel like I need to take a shower, but I just kind of feel like I need to be alone and just kind of, I need to... Process. Yeah, kind of regather my thoughts and just get out of that rut that movie put me in, you know, because it, it's, it's like I said, it's it's dark. It goes to a dark place. But it this really movie does. will stand the test of time. Absolutely. And I'm with you guys. I'm highly skeptical of this remake. Um, I'm curious. I'm curious to see uh, what John Lithgow brings to Judd Crandall. Uh, I know there's a twist from the book in the original movie with this mo- with the new movie, which I don't know how I feel about that either. Won't go into spoilers on that, but if you watch the second trailer, you'll know what I'm talking about. But 
I don't know I'm going to rush to the theaters to see it, but I definitely will watch the remake. What do you got, Dave? I was just going to say, not to distract from that, uh, or, or to lead into that too much, but another thing that they did in the book that made me wonder if that that new twist was in the book was they spend some time where you don't know whether which way is up because they they explain that Gage has died and then they almost retract it for a good chapter or two where it's like oh Gage you know turns out all right and and has this bright future where he goes to college and like you know they're explaining it in full detail and like oh that's hmm that's a different uh that, that that's a different way to look at it. What the movie was that? Wow. He wakes up and it's all a dream. Hmm. And then you're like, ah, I thought they were going to do something. Ah, Steven, wild. you got me. Yeah. They button hooked him. Ah. <laughs> yeah. He wheezed it too hard, huh? But uh, Pet Cemetery from 1989, it is now streaming on Amazon Prime for any Prime users, and it is on Hulu. So. And the again the unearthed and untold path of pet cemetery documentary from uh, 2017. It is on. Good watch. To be oh yeah, I think it, I highly recommend it. If you're a fan of the movie of the book Stephen King, absolute must watch. Yep. Uh, but it's on Tubi TV and Shutter if you have a subscription. Yes. So sometimes movies just shouldn't be made remade. <laughs> so. Fail. Yeah, I mean, you tried. Uh, yeah, whatever. It's okay. It is what it is. It's not as bad as my plot synopsis for Bubba Hotep. That's, that's, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, I butchered it. <laughs> All right, so at this point, this concludes our review of Pet Cemetery from 1989, directed by Mary Lambert. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did discussing and dissecting it. Find us on Facebook at Nostalgia Highway Podcast, and be sure to be on the lookout for new announcements, drawings, updates, and trivia. We would love to hear from you. Any ideas for future episodes, input on older episodes, or any questions you may have. In addition to the Facebook page, you can also email the show at nostalgiahighwaypodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give a huge thank you to Cody Jones and Sean Jackson for our new theme music for the show. On behalf of Lord Ketchum and Dave King of the Road, I am the mayor, Matt Loxton, and we thank you once again for hitching a ride along with us. And we'll be sure to look out for you next time on Nostalgia Highway.